0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM.
2: Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And of course, anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E L M N T F M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. And it is a pleasure to welcome back to our show... Mr. Byram Bridal and uh, Mr. Cheyenne Sharif. We had them, uh, Byram and Cheyenne, on the show earlier in the year. We were talking about at that time, uh, before the vaccines had actually appeared on our horizon, we were talking about the timelines associated with vaccines and them being unrealistic. So uh, we, we are now seeing, of course, and we've already had some of these vaccines delivered to the country. And it's a pleasure to have both Byram and Cheyenne back Back on to talk about, um, you know, the the sense of we've heard some of the concerns still around the vaccines, the timelines, the 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 rush to get them to us, which, of course, is very valid in terms of wanting to get these vaccines to uh, people so that we can uh, get this this COVID-19 thing under control to some degree, because it's still going to take a long time for these vaccines to get into the hands of everyone in the world. They've got to be distributed. And uh, as we know, some of these vaccines have to be kept at very very cold temperatures but there's also differences in some of these vaccines from different companies so we really wanted to get uh, Byram and, and Cheyenne back on to talk about some of these things and talk about the realistic uh, approach that is now being taken to uh, getting these uh, vaccines into the hands of Canadians and people right around the world. But first, a little bit more about Byram and Cheyenne. Byram Bridal, he's an Associate Professor of Viral Immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, as well as Cheyenne Sharif. He's a Professor of Immunology and Associate Dean, Research and Graduate studies also at the University of Guelph. So, Byram and Cheyenne, welcome back
1: to the show. Oh, David, it's thanks our pleasure for, to be here. Thanks very much for having us, David.
2: Yes, and and so you, you heard me give that opening. Um, how have you guys been uh, perceiving what's been going on around the planet as far as hearing about you know the these vaccines that are coming out from from different companies around the world you know uh, and 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 their implementation? Who, who would like to start?
0: Uh, I can I can start first, uh, David. So. One of the things uh, that I just like to point out is, um, you know, as you mentioned, interestingly, we, we talked to you uh, some time ago about the vaccine timeline, mm. uh, and at the time, we you know, we we had essentially uh, insinuated that any vaccines that were being developed and were still uh, in in the phase fa- in, a, in a phase of research prior to clinical trials. Um would you know, would not be ready anytime soon, and that certainly has been the case. We had also mentioned that the um, that the the lead vaccines that were in clinical trials at that time, uh, that there was probably a low probability that they would be ready by by the new year, early mm-hmm. 2021. Mm-hmm. So one thing I want to point out is, um, you know, kudos to these companies, they have uh, and, and and the regulatory agencies that have obviously, found ways to dramatically speed up the process because they have shattered, you know, the previous record, which was about four years for an Ebola vaccine that was developed by Merck. Mm. And um, so so the the speed at which this has happened has been completely, it's been absolutely remarkable. Uh, And like I said, shatters all previous records by by a long shot. and, and the, the other thing that comes out of this uh, that really stands out is uh, both, two of the front runner vaccines, um, well, you know, one that was approved is the, the, the Pfizer vaccine at the moment, uh, but Moderna is also a front runner still and has applied for approval. Both of them are RNA, what we call RNA based vaccines. So it's, it takes uh, a bit of genetic material that codes for a piece of the SARS coronavirus too. And um, th- we have never had an RNA-based vaccine uh, that's been approved for use in people ever before. So it also represents a brand new vaccine technology. Uh, So this is the first time that that, uh, we we will be using RNA-based vaccines. And so what that does, that opens the door to a a brand new technological platform that could potentially be used for all kinds of different um, infectious diseases in the future. But the other thing that I want to point out is because of this uh, world record shattering pace at which, uh, you know, the Pfizer vaccine has ultimately uh, been approved on is we also are faced with questions about these vaccines that we've never faced in the past. Um, So so one of several questions that I can think of, for example, is uh, I've been having people ask me if I can, you know, assure them of the long-term safety of this vaccine. So that's an interesting question, because if you think about it, the fastest vaccine before, if it was four years going through the clinical trial process, that meant uh, quite literally that we had years of uh, safety data on those vaccines before uh, before that vaccine got rolled out in the general public. Whereas uh, on the flip side here, these vaccines didn't exist 10 months ago. So as they're being rolled out, you know, starting today in Canada, they will, uh, they are being, we, we, have, we have in contrast only months of, of safety data. So by definition, we can't, with 100% confidence, uh, comment on the long-term safety, let's say the safety, you know, for a year or more beyond uh, vaccination.
2: Mm. Yes, understood. Um, As you mentioned, these are, are a new type of vaccine. How does that differ from what we were dealing with before? You said these are R and A vaccines. What were we dealing with before this?
0: Would
1: you like to take that one, Sean? I'd be happy to. Uh, so maybe, you know, um, I should also just uh, go back to your first question, David. Sure. And, sure. and j- just wanted to say that, you know, it, it's, it's been extraordinary. And let's put it this way. You know, the last nine months of human life has been absolutely extraordinary. Mm. We've been able to adopt uh, new technologies. We've been able to adapt to new technologies, you know, Teams, Zoom, uh Google uh, Meet all of those things you know were completely a foreign language to most of us but we were able to adapt to those you know almost instantaneously over a matter of probably a day or so And uh, what Barham just mentioned about the regulatory process for approval of vaccines, this would have taken us probably years, not days, to approve a new technology. Even an old technology would have taken us probably months for approval, for the approval process within Health Canada or other regulatory bodies. But it merely took us a few hours or a few days to uh, approve these vaccines I, I do actually have to say, you know, kudos to those individuals in Health Canada, FDA, or other regulatory bodies who were actually able to do this, you know, on, a, on such short notice. So my kudos to them, and I think, you know, their service is it has just begun. I think we are going to be faced with a few other, perhaps you know, half dozen more vaccines in the future, and each of them would require the same level of scrutiny. So. Um, I, I cannot say enough thanks to those individuals who've done this. Um, and, and going uh, back to the second question that you asked both of us, which is, what exactly are RNA vaccines? So these are genetic materials uh, that would encode a protein of the virus, the so-called spike protein. If you can think of the protein with things, uh, if you can think of the virus with things sticking out of of its membrane. Those things that stick out are the so-called spike proteins, and they give the virus, the coronavirus, its name. Because the virus, the coronavirus, is named due to the fact that it looks like a sun, looks like the sun. So it has projections coming out of its membrane, and spike protein is actually what makes up those. Projections. And the virus utilizes those spike proteins in order to attach itself to your cell and my cell. And as a result of that, then it can gain entry inside the cell. So, what scientists have done at Moderna and Pfizer, and um, at the small biotech company in Germany that created the platform for Pfizer, they've used the technology for getting the RNA, which is the genetic material that encodes that spike protein, and then put it in small so-called nanoparticles. These are, I would say, lipid cages, very, very tiny lipid cages. They put those RNA molecules inside those tiny cages, and then they've delivered those tiny cages into humans. And I presume that prior to humans, they must have had some preclinical work using laboratory animal models, in order to see whether or not, first of all, those RNA molecules can be delivered. Secondly, are they safe? Thirdly, can they produce the spike protein in its entirety? And fourthly, it, are those molecules that are being produced, the spike proteins, can they induce an immune response in the host, be it in preclinical models or in humans? And most importantly, even if we produce an immune response, it doesn't mean that we are protected. So really to have the cherry on the on the top of the cake, they wanted to look at efficacy of the vaccine. And lo and behold, it has fulfilled all of the above. You can deliver it. It is safe to, to a great extent. There may be some reactions caused in some individuals, especially in some individuals who are prone to um, allergies, but mm-hmm. by and large, it's safe in great majority of individuals, and on top of that it can induce an immune response and more importantly it's it can confer uh, protection against the virus up to approximately ninety five percent or m- maybe a bit less maybe a bit more depending on. Uh, the age group and so forth, and also depending on what kind of vaccine that has been used, either the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine. Mm.
2: Fascinating. I appreciate you very much describing the cell. That's, of course, we see that all over the place. That globe with the with the those protein uh, projectile things that you mentioned coming out uh, as to what this COVID uh, cell looks like. You know, in on its own right, it's quite fascinating. Isn't it, how it, how it operates, it's quite uh, quite brilliant in, in terms of its its ability to be able to function that way. The cell itself, the COVID itself, is it's interesting when you look at that from a scientific perspective. I guess.
1: Yes, indeed, it is actually quite um, quite amazing that how the virus interacts with its host. The reality is that virus utilizes very small number of molecules in order to interact with its host cells. And some of those molecules um, on our side, on the host side, seem to have high affinity for this particular protein of the virus, i.e. they bind with very high uh, strength to, um, to the protein. If our proteins were binding with less strength, probably you know this virus would not have caused so much problem. But the flip side of the coin is that if the protein would have actually bound with much more strength, we could have actually seen a very different type of virus uh, transmission and perhaps you know even more disease causing capacity mm-hmm. for the virus. So this virus has the, I would say, merely the right amount of you know, strength to bind to our cells, not too much and not too little. If it had too much of strength, it could have actually caused perhaps much more disease. Mm. If it had less of it, probably it would not have actually been such a terrible virus Mm. for us. Probably we would have... You know, responded to it with not much difficulty, and probably the amount of disease causing of um, capacity of the virus would have been diminished quite substantially. Now, you,
2: you threw out some numbers there uh, in terms of its efficiency, around ninety five percent, roughly that we've been hearing about. Um, the effectiveness. Do we know much about the the uh, how long the the these uh, Vaccines might last in any one person, and and, and there's differences as well. We know that uh, I think the Pfizer one is, is it, I'm not sure what, which one is a dual uh, application. You, you need to get two shots, and one is just a single shot, I think.
0: Yeah, I can comment on that, uh, David. So uh, both of the RNA, in fact, uh, the vast majority of the vaccination strategies among the uh, front-running companies, including Pfizer, is, uh, it's a two-dose regimen. So, so that's very important to keep in mind. So anytime you're hearing about the rollout of of doses and the numbers of doses that have pre, been pre-purchased by countries such as Canada, uh, you, you in theory have to cut that yes. number in half in yes. terms of number of people that can be uh, sufficiently vaccinated. So Pfizer, for a, a example, they, they have they have some data. They have some data that suggests that there's a reasonable level of protection conferred by their first dose of the vaccine. But they're not going to assure uh, this this 94 uh, percent effectiveness of the vaccine unless people get both doses of, of their vaccine. And right. so one thing to keep in mind right away is uh, and it depends on the company. So, for example, between Pfizer and Moderna, right, they, they, they both have these RNA vaccines, both of them require two doses. One is 28 days apart. The other one's 21 days apart. Mm. Um, and then when they were looking at their uh, study subjects in their phase three trials, which is where they define as effectiveness, they waited either one or two weeks after that second dose.
1: Mm.
0: And then what they did on this trial. So this effectiveness that you're hearing about is based on somebody getting through the entire vaccination regimen. So that would mean that they would have to. Uh, so that would be between five to six weeks. Right. So they waited until. Uh, a week or two after the second dose. And then if an individual did not have COVID-19, if they did not have the sars coronavirus 2 at that point in time, then they were officially enrolled into that clinical trial. And so the effectiveness of the vaccine was based on uh, the volunteers potentially acquiring COVID-19 after that time point. So in other words, if you want to apply that 94% effectiveness, uh, that excludes this large window up front, meaning that um, you know during the vaccination process, because it is a fairly long process, people are susceptible. You know uh, during that time of infection, so they people to keep that in mind. Right, mm-hmm. it's going to be six weeks after the first dose before they can consider themselves s- to be part of that you know population where the 94 percent effectiveness has been seen. And the second part of your question. <laughs> It is absolutely critical. This is a question that really everybody should be asking right now, which is uh, you're asking how long, how long this protection would last. Uh, well, first of all, so just before I touch on that, let me let me just say one thing. Let me say one other front-runner company, which is Johnson & Johnson, mm-hmm. which has what's known as the Janssen vaccine, and this is a virus vector vaccine, so a different kind of vaccine than the RNA vaccines. What this one does is it uses a safe non-disease-causing virus as a Trojan horse to deliver uh, 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 the spike protein from the SARS-CoV-2. And in their trial, they, are, they have two arms. They're testing the effectiveness of their vaccine, both as a single dose and a, a double dose. Um, so that one that's one vaccine that does have the potential, should the effectiveness look good in that single-dose arm, There's the possibility that they could get their vaccine approved to be delivered as a single dose. Um, And and so that's that's important to keep in mind, uh, because when it comes to the rollout of the vaccine, uh, if everything else is equal, safety and and effectiveness, then obviously a single dose vaccine is going to be able to uh, uh, get out uh, into the general public. Uh, about twice as fast by definition as one that requires two doses now now with that said the, the critical part it, it, the whole purpose of these vaccines is to induce an immune response in people that will protect them from infection with the SARS coronavirus too so what we so what what immunologists refer to as the key uh, um, sort of measure of, of a vaccine is what we call duration of immunity and what that simply means is, how long after a person is vaccinated do they remain protected from that infectious disease? So as applied to these SARS coronavirus vaccines, then how long after the people get vaccinated, will they remain protected uh, from the risk of COVID-19? And this again, so, so, and what I can tell you is that, uh, We have vaccines, you know, that are in use that are all over the place in terms of duration of immunity. We have very good childhood vaccines that that will confer protection for decades. Um, But on the other side, we also have uh, examples of some vaccines that have a very short duration of immunity, maybe even as short as half a year. And uh, what that means then is if, if it only has protects for half a year, that means after half a year that individual becomes susceptible again to that particular disease. Now, this is where it's interesting because of this ultra rapid timeline, the duration of immunity is one of these questions I mentioned right at the beginning uh, of our discussion that that is outstanding. Uh, so, so I mentioned one at that time and mentioned there's several others that are outstanding um, as a result of this fast timeline so if you think about it again we go back to the example of the previous fastest vaccine which took four years to navigate the clinical trial process and then got rolled out into people again by definition that meant that we had years of duration of immunity data right we knew we had a pretty good idea that that vaccine was going to be able to confer protective immunity uh for several years again we, because these vaccines didn't exist 10 months ago, uh, we have very little duration of immunity data. In fact, for these RNA vaccines, there was some data that was j- just published last week in the um, uh, one of the medical journals, one of the top medical journals. And it's interesting. So even though the vaccines were in, have been to people for months, the actual formal duration of immunity data was published they just published an update last week and that brought the duration of immunity data to 90 days 90 days nine zero so about three months um and it still looks good so what that means is you know uh, shortly after vaccination they could measure the magnitude of the immune response and the data so far shows that 90 days later the the magnitude of the immune response is remaining high so that that looks very positive However, uh, to put in perspective, that is only three months of, of data that we have right at the moment. So what that means is we don't we don't know what's going to happen beyond that. Uh, the best case scenario is that that immunity remains high for you know a year or two. Essentially, what we need is we need that immunity to remain high for as long as it takes to roll out these vaccines. Right. Right. So for us to be able to achieve that goal of, quote, herd immunity, mm. which is at least 60% of people immune. So the virus can no longer efficiently spread among our population. So, but the worst case scenario would be, for example, if this immunity did suddenly drop off precipitously um, and if it, it, and if the duration of immunity was only six months or eight months, and it looks like it's going to take probably well beyond a year to get enough people vaccinated, mm-hmm. right? That, would, that could potentially be a little bit disastrous because the people being immunized right now would be susceptible to the disease again before yes. we achieved herd immunity.
2: Yes. Yes, understood. Uh, all, all good points, and thank you for for uh, sharing that. Before we go any further, you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And that, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E L M N T F M, fm And then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. This is Moment of Truth, and I'm your host, David Moses. My guests are Mr. Byram Bridle. He's an associate professor of Viral Immunology in the Department of Pathiobiology at the University of Guelph as well as Cheyenne Sharif he's a professor of immunology and associate dean research and graduate studies also at the University of Guelph we had both Byram and Cheyenne on the show earlier in the year and we wanted to have them back on now that we we have more of a, an idea of what we're looking at in terms of the vaccines that are rolling out around the world now from different companies uh, they were mentioned uh, Pfizer Moderna and uh, Johnson and Johnson uh, as 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 we we were just talking about and gentlemen it's a real pleasure to have you back on on the show and talk about this it's you know something that i, I thought about when we when we were through going through this about the vaccine and, and it goes right back you know we were all told to get the flu shot and we were you know they, they offer us a flu shot every year because the the flus change they alter as we all know so we, we have to keep getting these flu shots now how is that different Than introducing a vaccine for something like this, because I I keep wondering about how do they know what to give us in terms of of a shot for for something that hasn't hit us yet? You know, it's still coming. And so how is that different than creating something new or creating something that we get recurrently um, for for viruses
1: like the flu? So, David, I, I can probably take take um, take on the question. Thank you. So, uh, th- there is one big difference between influenza viruses and coronaviruses, and obviously, there are also a lot of similarities. So, we talked about RNA vaccines. The reality is that the genetic material of both coronaviruses and influenza viruses is indeed RNA. um um, and and uh, that that's one big similarity but there are also a lot of differences between the two coronaviruses unlike influenza viruses don't have a huge amount of propensity to mutate themselves and their genetic material so influenza viruses have a very bad habit of not only mutating their genes but also they can reassort. And what I mean by reassortment, just if you can imagine, you know, trying to exchange, you know, your clothing, you know, with a friend or with a neighbor, Influenza viruses do exactly that. When they see another counterpart, another influenza virus, especially you know in domestic animal species, for example, in pigs, you know they have a tendency to exchange their genetic material. So uh, as a result of that, you know when you have two influenza viruses coming into a, a host, an intermediate host, let's say for example in pigs, or perhaps even in humans, all of a sudden they have a tendency to exchange their genetic material, and as a result of that, you have emergence of novel viruses almost instantaneously. Mm. And on top of that, they have a tendency to mutate their genetic material so they can generate very new viruses and novel viruses all the time, Mm. all the time. Mm. And that's why we need to renew our vaccination every year. In case of coronaviruses, they can mutate themselves, but the rate of mutation is not really as great as the rate of mutation in, in, in influenza viruses. Also, they don't really have a huge amount of tendency to exchange their genetic material. Just imagine that they would have actually been able to do. And then, you know, we had worked for a number of months on Moderna or Pfizer vaccines, and all of a sudden we were faced with a brand new virus that didn't even look remotely similar to the original virus. That would have really created a huge amount of, I would say, You know, for the vaccines that we have available, and we would have probably had to do what we do for seasonal influenza vaccination, which is to change our vaccine every year. But thankfully, coronaviruses don't have that kind of capacity. They do, but they don't exercise that kind of capacity. Mm. Although there is... Uh, there is now some evidence that they can, in fact, mutate, and perhaps some of those mutations could cause issues for immunogenicity and protective efficacy of vaccines, such as, for example, the work done in mink uh, populations has, has actually shown that mink um, can, in fact, create a milieu for, for coronaviruses, for SARS-CoV-2, that causes COVID-19 to undergo mutations, and some of those mutants are no longer... Um, uh, probably they're not going to be uh, protected against by, va- by vaccines, even though we don't really have any evidence for it. But there is a possibility for that. Um, so we need to be a bit vigilant about, you know, these new mutants that emerge in in, in humans or in other uh, species, other animal species. Um But aside from that, I I would say coronaviruses are not actually too difficult to create a vaccine against them. And in fact, if you look at, you know, the the chickens that you and I eat, many of them are vaccinated against coronaviruses. And coronavirus vaccines that are used in, for example, poultry industry are quite efficacious. We've been able to um, control one of the deadliest Um, diseases in the poultry industry using a, a variety of different types of vaccines against this particular coronavirus, which is called infectious bronchitis virus in chickens. However, there are actually mutations of these infectious bronchitis virus that could, in fact, be quite resistant to vaccination, and as a result of that, they require a new generation of vaccines. So what I'm really saying is that, you know, at the moment, based on the type of viruses that we are dealing with, we believe that the vaccines that are currently available, and Byron talked about three of them, there is also a fourth one, uh, the one that has been uh, developed by AstraZeneca uh, in collaboration with Oxford University. That one also is a vector, uh, is a virus vectored vaccine. Uh, there's also a Russian vaccine that's um, that's becoming quite um, um, quite successful. As, and that one also is a virus vectored vaccine. So all of these could actually provide a very good, I, I would say, ammunition against coronaviruses as long as they don't mutate.
2: Okay, gentlemen. Actually, David, could yeah. I, I
0: just have a, an additional couple comments on that? Sure. Uh, yeah. So so I agree completely with Professor uh, Sharif, uh, and uh, he's explained very well the, the difference in the biology of the, the two viruses, the influenza viruses and the coronaviruses, and why the former requires the vaccines to be renewed every year, and the coronavirus likely, uh, if anything, would probably change relatively slowly over time. but. Uh, just to highlight again, what did happen in the mink in, in uh, Denmark does highlight right that uh, that that new variants can uh, develop uh, certainly in these mink populations. So that, that, that the mink now have been proven to be a what we call a reservoir for this virus. So that would be a population uh, that that's densely housed that, that can readily be infected that facilitates the infection, meaning allows the virus to replicate. They can can pass the virus uh, between one another. And so that means the virus can go through many replication cycles and live long-term in that species. And that's where a virus has the opportunity to potentially change. And indeed, the coronavirus would change slowly over time relative to an influenza virus. But what happened in, in Denmark does highlight the fact that it can result in a fundamentally a new version of the virus so a new variant emerged it had, had accumulated four mutations in the mink by the time it got back into people uh indeed the good news about that one is it doesn't seem to be a more dangerous virus than the, the parental virus nor is there any evidence that it's going to be able to evade either natural naturally acquired immunity nor the vaccine induced immunity from these front-runner vaccines uh, which is good news but it does show the potential and that's where the concern came from right there is the potential for because these mutations are random. There is the potential in the future sometime, if there's these reservoir populations like the mink, that, that uh, a variant that comes out and, and gets back into people could potentially be more dangerous or evade immunity. Uh, and if it was sufficiently changed, and this is the thing, when that, the, the, the variant that came out in Denmark did have some changes to the spike protein, which is what's being targeted. Right. So some of the lessons we're learning from this is maybe we should, uh, you know, our next generation COVID-19 vaccines should incorporate uh, an additional uh, target or two on the virus because it's very difficult for a virus to change too much of its mm. physical structure without compromising its own fitness and mm. ability to survive. Mm. So, so that, that's definitely one uh, one aspect. And then we do have to carefully monitor these uh, potential reservoir populations, right? And, and there's a little bit of concern right now because you know we we just had uh, introduction now of the SARS coronavirus too. We have confirmation into mink in Canada, specifically that was at a farm in Fraser Valley in British Columbia. And uh, that, the farm is currently under quarantine and being monitored, and they're trying to consider, you know, what to do in that scenario. Uh, but there is a possibility. And the other thing that I just want to mention, um, although these viruses aren't prone to the rapid mutation and, and, and large changes uh, in, in, their, in their makeup that the influenza virus is, uh, one thing we have to keep in mind is as these vaccines are now being rolled out, This is the first time that this virus will be under any kind of substantial immunological pressure, right? Um, As we slowly vaccinate our population, uh, and and if you think about it, this uh, this would be akin to... um, Antibiotic resistance, which many of your listeners would probably be familiar with, right? And, and and so indeed, anytime we go to a physician and they prescribe antibiotics to us, right, we're always told follow through on the full duration of treatment, right? So if they prescribe it for 10 days, if after three or four days, you're feeling very well, you're not supposed to stop your antibiotics. You continue for the full 10 days, even if you're feeling very well at that point. The reason being is you want to make sure that you kill off all of those pathogenic bacteria that are being treated. Because if you do not, and you just leave a few behind, you're going to, over time, select for the viruses that are resistant to that antibiotic. Right. And this is the potential concern with the SARS-CoV-2 right now. If you have a, a potentially dangerous virus, And the ideal way to eliminate it by vaccination would be to rapidly vaccinate your entire population. The reason being is that there would be no opportunity for that virus to change and evade that vaccine-induced immunity. But in fact, we're kind of forced into this. We're going to have this very long piecemeal rollout of the vaccine, right? We've already seen that. So in Canada, every province is getting you know a few thousand doses. So they're only going to be able to vaccinate initially a very tiny percentage of their population, um, and then we're going to be hoping for subsequent doses to come in later. We're going to vaccinate more, and there's probably you know, multiple rounds of this. And that, in essence, is actually probably the worst, uh, or I guess the approach that would best facilitate potential mutation of this virus because what happens then is as people start slowly as a population we slowly start developing immunity against this virus um, and we have a slowly shrinking reservoir what that does it applies selection pressures right and then if this virus is going to survive in the population the only way it's going to be able to do so is if it randomly generates mutants that are capable of bypassing this vaccine-induced immunity so Uh, Yes, this vaccine, this this virus changes slowly um, and it usually just makes small changes at any given time. But um, the big question is, how will that biology be impacted by the slow rollout and gradual buildup of immunological pressure against this virus?
2: Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. I did have some other questions, but as usual, we're going to have to have you guys back on the show again. I think maybe in the new year or once we get further into this, though, that we can hear and get your feedback on, on how it's going, et cetera, et cetera, and what we're seeing at that time. Uh, quickly, you know, uh, the temperatures these things have to be kept at are very, very cold. Why is, why is that? Yeah.
1: <laughs> maybe i can yeah maybe i can chime in here uh david and i and i see my timer we only have 3 minutes so i'll, I'll try to be very quick uh rna is highly unstable and it requires low temperatures i can tell you that we've worked with rna of both human animals and 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 also viruses and uh, in my lab and and uh, and our rna is very much prone to degradation at room temperature so if you keep RNA at room temperature, I would say within a matter of few minutes, perhaps even less than an hour, you have complete degradation of Mm -hmm. RNA. So that's actually one of the reasons that it has to be kept in the so-called cold chain. And the cold chain that we usually apply for, I would say childhood disease vaccines, you know, is usually much higher than this, not minus 80. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The Pfizer vaccine has to be kept at minus 80. And I suspect and I presume that it's primarily because of propensity of RNA to get degraded, even though they coat it with nanoparticles, lipid nanoparticles, I think, you know, it's still quite prone to degradation. I believe the Moderna vaccine is a little bit more resistant to mm-hmm. um, to um, uh, higher temperatures, and that's probably, you know, a, a better way for sending a uh, vaccine to more remote areas in Canada or around the globe. Mm.
2: And... You know, the other thing we've heard about recently is because Canada is not uh, producing its own vaccine and we're, we're sort of at the whim of other uh, businesses and, and countries in terms of receiving ours. We, you know, and it, it was brought up, I heard uh, in the news recently, you know, we used to produce our own. Uh, what do you guys think about the, and, and just a quick answer, you know, uh, about the, the, is there a possibility we could start producing our own in the future?
0: Uh, so this is a great question, David. What, what this uh, pandemic has done for every country, including Canada, is really put a spotlight on weaknesses in our infrastructure when it comes to vaccine development. Uh, so, for example, uh, another issue is um, a lack of uh, containment level three facilities that can facilitate things like non-human primate trials, which are often what's needed to really accelerate uh, the development of vaccines towards clinical trials and testing in humans. Uh, and but you mentioned another a, a, uh, for sure the the um, production or production capacity. Uh, so yes, I, I think these have all been noted, and I'm sure that we're going to see some substantial investments into the future to shore up these uh, these critical weaknesses that have been highlighted by this pandemic.
2: Great. Gentlemen, we're going to have to leave it there. I think I might get cut off, but thank you so much once again. We really look forward to having you back on the show in the new year once again to uh, bring us up to date on the further developments as we get through this.
0: It's my pleasure, David. Take care.
2: All right. Take thank care. Thank you very much you. Take yep, care, take care and happy holidays to both of you.
1: Happy holidays to you too.
2: And that, of course, uh, is the voices of Byron Bridle, an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph, and Cheyenne Sharif, professor of immunology and associate dean in the Research and Graduate Studies, also at the University of Guelph. And it's a pleasure to have them back on the show. We really look forward to having them back because I got some more questions for them. But that is this part of the show. So we want to thank you, our listeners, each and every day for listening to us. I'm your host, David Moses. And we will be back with more right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome
2: back to Moment of Truth. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And I am your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth. And I also want to welcome those listeners on other radio stations that carry the show, as well as if you are online listening to one of our podcasts on our SoundCloud or on one of your favorite podcast streaming platforms anywhere around the globe. And I also want to welcome our guest to the show. I am speaking with Wendy Wong. She's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, but she's also the research lead at the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society and a Canada Research Chair in Global Governance and Civil Society. So it's a pleasure to have her on the show. We're going to be starting the conversation talking about an article she wrote in The Conversation, and it is called, As U.S. Capital Investors Use Facial Recognition, it begs the question, Who owns our faces? okay, that's a good question. I thought I owned my own face, <laughs> Wendy, but welcome to the show how does how does this work that we're now at a at a point in time in in the way of of technological advances that we have to even ask a question like who owns our faces?
3: Yeah, thanks for having me, david. i And I thought that's exactly the thought I was having when I was reading all these news reports about how facial recognition technology was being used in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol Mm. riots. And it made me really think about all the other ways that actually our faces have become data out there. And so, you know, the investigators using facial recognition technology is just one way that that kind of technology is being used in, in a lot of different things that we interact with. And, and in fact, it's everywhere. Mm. So in that sense, you know, we don't own the data to our faces anymore, at least in, in the sense that we can't necessarily control who has that data or how they use it. And so it is a strange question because our face is very much our face, <laughs> but the data on the face, our faces is, uh, is a less clear cut. Answer.
2: I think. Yeah, you know, you you talk about social media. You talk about the social platforms that we all use. We voluntarily put our faces up on these platforms, and it makes me wonder why and how we would have thought to start doing this. Would it have been from something like that in terms of the you know uh, law prevention and and trying to use it in a way to to track criminals? Uh, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how how it all came about.
3: The history of facial recognition technology is actually not a new technology. Mm. It's been around since the 1960s, which would put it around, I mean, a little bit later than, but around the same time we started getting what we call artificial intelligence or AI Mm. um, being developed. So Mm. these are not new, but what's new about what's going on with facial recognition technology is that the technology is simply getting much, much better. um, And there are just many, many more sources for the algorithms that are detecting facial features to train on. And that's really the key. So that's where the social media comes in. That's uh, where just in general, how a lot of our lives are online and we post photos of ourselves, whether on social media or, you know, on 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 our profiles in in Venmo or mm-hmm. other websites, for example, that are not necessarily social media or what we think about as social media. And I think that's the difference. That's the key difference I think we should keep in mind. It's that this technology's been around for quite some time and police and other agencies have, mm-hmm. have used that technology, but it's really gotten good in the past five to ten years because the training data or the number of faces that algorithms are now exposed to is many, 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 many more times than what it used to be. And the sources for those photos um, of faces have, has mm. gotten much broader, much mm-hmm. wider. It's not just government photos, for example. It's now yeah. whatever we're putting up online to share.
2: Yeah. And this is a larger issue for you, I understand. This uh, this idea of this article you wrote about face recognition software and how it's being used and, and the, the data, It's th- that separates it to another category altogether. It's not just the face recognition we think about, the visual, but this is the data. Um, but you have uh, a book you're working on, I understand, that this is just one of those things that you're going to be looking at in there.
3: Yeah. So this is, this is a part of how I try to explain the importance of thinking about data and the datafication of our lives Mm. and really how human rights as a, as a framework to define sort of the way that human beings ought to live lives of human dignity are, are being changed as a result of the fact that, our lives are, are largely going to be datified, meaning that they're going to be quantified and and put into binary code and saved on a server somewhere. Mm. And I think that's a fundamentally different thing from, from our lives to date, which has largely been, you know, in-person sort of physical interactions. So The impetus for writing the book was really to think about the fact that there are a lot of data about you in the world. It's not just your face. I think the face is the one that, you know, is really attention grabbing. It's a bit creepy um, to think about your face being data. Mm. But it's really everything you're really doing when you interact with a device is now datafied. Meaning that the things that that we do without maybe even thinking about it. So, you know, like things we're not even aware of, how long we spend on a website, whether we click on a link or an advertisement or not, uh, what apps we have open on our phone as we walk around the neighborhood mm-hmm. or go downstairs and get a coffee. All these things are being tracked and mm-hmm. logged somewhere. And and that, our, our lives down to the very mundane details that we aren't necessarily conscious of are now part of some profile about what i call in the book the data you it's this other version of you mm. it's not the physical you it's this data right. quantified version of you right and we don't really have a lot of protections for that version of you um and when we think about protecting the person in, in a human rights framework which is where i'm coming from we talk about protecting the actual person but the data they generate the the data that is produced as a result of individual behaviors, that's not, that's not really protected. And the question is, should it be? Um, and most of us would think yes, because data about people or individuals really reveals a lot of information about who we are. And mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be called personal data or biometric data to reveal things that, that we may not want others to know
2: about. As you were talking there, I couldn't help but think of the matrix, and <laughs> <laughs> but in, in a very different way, because what I was thinking of is with the amount of data, as you say, that is being collected on us, not just our faces, in so many different ways. I, I think of another example of how, uh, again, going back to, to stories of police where they, oh. You know, his charge card was used at this location, you know, Mm -hmm. and and so that another example of how that's being tracked and something else that's being tracked, taking all that data that you're referring to and putting it into as it's being housed somewhere. You could rebuild a person in a virtual form and have a virtual life that they could live entirely online somewhere, uh, completely separate from this this person. Uh, I guess in some ways it's like the... Your avatar. Your avatar, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. All, it's all really fascinating. We certainly look forward to hearing more about that book and the information you're going to bring forward on that. I guess the other thing that comes to mind is is that right now there's lots of software, there's cameras everywhere yeah. that are already utilizing this this software and in probably ways we don't even know or realize how prolific it is already.
3: Yeah, right. So in terms of facial recognition technology, I think that it's used in a lot of different contexts and it's not necessarily always well Labeled, mm. and depending on where you are in the world, the regulation can vary quite a bit. So I think that's one of the reasons why I think human rights is an appropriate framework. It's a universal framework. It's mm. something that will help all of us think, in general, about what we we think of as a human experience and what things we want to exclude from that and what things we want to include from that. Right. So it's a more universalizing language. We do have lots of. There are some regulations here and there that exist around, you know, facial recognition technology, whether it should be used or not. But in general, it's mm. being deployed without much mm. regulation or even recognition. I think, you know, these recent deploy- very high profile deployments of the technology are, are telling us is that, hey, it's it's in a lot of places. Um, I also wanted, I thought your matrix reference was really Great, and and I think that's exactly the way to to think about this. Is that we tend to think of data as a byproduct of who we are, but I think we need to think about it more as part of who we are, Mm -hmm. if not increasingly who we are in a in a different sense. And to to acknowledge that and take that seriously is is going to have different policy consequences than just managing it from you know this. Oh, this is something you produce, but you know it's it's not who you are, and I and I think that's not the the right mindset. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I hope I didn't give anybody an idea of a you know a new movie. If if anybody starts a film based on what I was saying about that that Avatar idea being built from data, well, you you, you got to pay me the royalties. There That's you go. Right.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the other thing is, I remember hearing a story, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story. It has to do with I, I think China has uh, lots of cameras all over right. the place, and in particular, I heard about a story. I believe it was a, a journalist that was visiting. Uh, Beijing, and they wanted to find out about this facial recognition uh, software and how good it was and they let this guy loose in the city uh, new to the city of course and to see how long it would take to find him and locate him and I heard it was like 6 or 7 minutes before they located him Hmm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that story I'm not sure if it's just hearsay but it is something that uh, I do remember hearing about
3: yeah, I, I don't know that particular story, but it's not a secret that, that China um, has a lot of facial recognition technology cameras deployed. Mm. I think the issue is... It's not just happening in, in China and in, in places that don't have democratic governments. It's happening in London. Mm. Um, London is actually one of the most, we know it's one of the most covered in terms of closed caption TV, CCTV, mm. but it's also deploying facial recognition technology. And and so this has not been unchallenged, but mm. thus far, the way as I understand it, uh, it's, being thought, it's being considered as... You know, how much oversight are people using before they think, before they use facial Mm -hmm. recognition technology, not whether Mm. it's okay or not. And so, you know, that's, and I think that's really the thing that we have to grapple with, um, is look, this technology exists and it, it serves purposes for, for law enforcement, for example, but, you know, we can imagine ways it can serve purposes for, for non-government entities as well, Mm. um, and so, you know, it's far faster than than human beings uh, recognizing, you know, facial features. And so, that, in that sense, it's it's a it's a tool that has impact on on how you know things like law enforcement work. Now, whether that's right or whether we think this is a technology that should be used in the way that it's being used, I think that's a separate question but it doesn't take back the fact that this technology does exist it's been deployed and there's a lot of data out there about people's faces
2: yeah and and i'm glad you brought up the the use for law enforcement and like you say but my other question about that is what are the concerns around it are there more benefits to using it or there are there more concerns about this software
3: So, from my view, I mean, I'm very concerned with it for a number of reasons. One, it's been widely documented and continues to be documented that, you know, the AI algorithms, the artificial intelligence algorithms that power facial recognition technology, just in general… Algorithms tend to be discriminatory against certain groups in society. So that would be racialized people. Um, you know, the algorithms in general don't perform as well on, on women's faces compared to men's faces. But, but more, I think, more to the point is that, you know, racialized communities, which are already treated discriminatorily yeah. by police departments and other ways, are just the the effects are, are greater against them, right? Mm. So they're more likely to have their civil rights violated as a nice. result of of facial recognition technology. That's one thing. I mean, I think other things that people have brought up around facial recognition, and I think I would argue data in general is how we think about something like privacy, which is a fundamental human right. And how we think about this idea of consent, which is mm. fundamental to, to democratic societies, mm. when our lives are are datafied and we don't necessarily know where that data is. We don't have a real way to, to say yes or no, you can use our data mm. in this way or that. And we don't necessarily always know what we're consenting to. There's been a lot of work done recently on these terms and conditions that a lot of us are clicking on when we download apps Mm -hmm. or when we go to a website. Most of us don't read these things because they're over, a lot of them are well over 20,000 words long. Mm -hmm. So it's not reasonable for us to read these things um, as a part of daily life. And nor do they really state necessarily what they're actually going to do with our data. So You know, I think, again, facial data is one of these issues that really raises a lot of questions to the fore about data in general, data Mm. about people in general. That is really it's going to come to a head soon.
2: Yeah. Well, you mentioned that it had been challenged then, you know, in some cases. What are the results of these challenges? Does it go anywhere? Do you know? Uh, Are they just you know swept under the rug and forgotten or do do these challenges actually bring about change?
3: Yeah. So, so just a couple days ago, in a fairly high-profile um, event, you know, the Office of the Privacy Commissioner here in Canada said that Clearview AI, which mm-hmm. is one of the databases that is widely used by by um, law enforcement in the U.S. Now, But, you know, Canadian authorities had also used it before. It's now not the case, but it had been used in Canada. Right. So the Office of the Privacy Commissioner ruled that Clearview AI had obtained its images in a violation of our our privacy Mm -hmm. laws here in Canada. Now, keep in mind, Clearview AI has three billion faces, at least three billion faces in its its database. Mm. So, you know, I, I think what that says is okay there are certain limits to how companies are going to have to operate here in Canada mm. although that that ruling is you know it's a, it's a ruling and it's a decision and a statement of, of the normative principles in Canada but it's not it's not enforceable in the same way that a you know a law mm. a hard law is it says something about what should and shouldn't be or what's what's right and what's wrong but then you know What does it mean that that was a violation of privacy? Because Clearview AI, the way they obtained those photos was through scraping websites. And Mm. so they got photos from Facebook. They got photos from YouTube. They got photos from Venmo. Mm. There are a ton of different websites that they got Mm. these photos from. These were things that people posted online. Right. Right. So... So the question is, what does privacy mean in, in sort of this age where we're both posting things for public consumption, but then these, once we've done that, other companies or other actors can, right. can come and, and use that data uh, for, for different purposes than what we intended. Right. I, I just want to say, I think we're moving into the era of, of a really interesting time. There's a, every day we've got headlines talking about big tech mm. and big data and AI and what do we do about that? And I'm sort of brought back to this statement that is credited often to Mark Zuckerberg, which is, you know, move fast and break things. Mm. And I think we're living through that broken things part, mm. you know, where where th- where what all these tech companies have done and, and you know, the technologies that they created are showing us is that the way we think about some fundamental things in our lives is not matching up with the reality that we're we're living through Mm. and i have i have confidence we'll we'll fix it we'll Mm. fix most of it Mm. but right now we're really looking for solutions and i think you know i appreciate the the chance to come back and and talk about some of the other things that that i I think will be things to highlight and then things that are hopefully fixes for some of the the broken things
2: all right i think you set up our next interview quite nicely there so we look forward (laughs) to that i just want to say thanks again wendy for joining us on the show
3: Thank you, David.
2: All right, take care. And that is the voice of Wendy Wong. She's a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, as well as the research lead at the Schwartz-Reisman Institute for Technology and Society and Canada Research Chair in Global Governance and Civil Society. And that is our show for today. Thank you for listening each and every day to Moment of Truth right here on Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. We'll see you again tomorrow, right here on Moment of Truth.